0: I'm going to preface this week's episode with a shout out to 50% of my audience that is actually male. I have and pretty much most episodes get a just about 50-50 split between men and women when I look at the analytics. So I'm super excited to offer this for the male audience but also for the female audience because what I'm learning is that even though I'm presenting most of my content from a female perspective and on female sexual dysfunction and issues related to sex and dating and relationships and menopause, What is also super important, obviously half of the puzzle for those heterosexual couples in my audience is that the male sexual issues, sexual dysfunction issues are just as prevalent and just as difficult for them as it is for us. So I'm super excited for you to listen to this episode. It's a long episode, but it's jam packed with information. And I encourage you to share this with all your friends because the more we educate our audience, the better it will be for all of our sexual health and overall well-being. Welcome to the Taboo to Truth podcast, unapologetic conversations about sexuality in midlife. I'm your hostess, Karen Bigman, certified life and menopause coach and sexual explorer, your trusted guide through the realms of dry vaginas, hot flashes, and the enigmatic orgasm journey. I'm here to bring the often quiet into the light to create a safe space where no question is too awkward or taboo. Whether you're experiencing changes in libido, concerned about navigating your menopausal life, or simply seeking to understand your body better, we are gonna share this journey and it will be brave and open-hearted. And yes, it's okay to talk about it and yes, it's okay to ask. So grab your favorite drink and put me on speaker. It's time we broke the silence. Welcome. Today I have a very special guest with me. I have Dr. Mohit Kara, who is a professor of urology at Baylor College of Medicine. He also holds the F. Brantley Scott chair in urology, Dr. Kara specializes in male and female sexual dysfunction, men's health, and hormone replacement therapy. He also serves as the director of the Laboratory for Andrology Research, the medical director of the Baylor Executive Health Program, and the medical director of the Scott Department of Urology. And in his spare time, he acts as president of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. Welcome, Dr. Kara.
1: Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: This is great because I have traditionally talked a lot about female sexuality and female issues amongst other things. And I'm very excited to address the male audience that I have um, having you here today. Although I know you work with both, you, you seem to have a different approach to, uh, to it. So that's why I'm, I'm particularly happy that uh, that I got to speak to you first in this, in this arena. So what brought you uh, into men's sexual health?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm a urologist by training. I finished my urology residency and after I finished, I wanted to super specialize in sexual dysfunction. So, you know, sexual dysfunction is an area of field where you're actually improving someone's quality of life. And so I also realized that many men who suffer from sexual dysfunction suffer in silence. They don't talk about it. There's several studies that showed they don't even talk about it, not only to their physicians, but up to 44% don't even talk to about their partners. They just avoid sex. And so it's very, it's very actually quite sad. These men just live with the condition. And I thought to myself that this is probably one of the best skills you can go into uh, if you can build awareness and if you can offer them treatment.
0: What I found really interesting when um, looking through your work and, and reading more about it is that a lot of the issues that women face, men face, but we just make this assumption that men have this great ego and, you know they're not really talking you know talking about it, or they're talking about it in the locker room, but in fact, it sounds like the shame that we have is very similar to to what men are suffering from.
1: Very similar and remember not only in women but also in men, it's a very high prevalence. The numbers I tell the residents to always remember I say, look, 40 percent of men at 40 have erectile dysfunction. 40 percent of men at 40, 50 percent at 50, 60 percent at 60, 100% wow. 100 at 100. you live long enough. A man's going to get erectile dysfunction. So these men come into my office and, you know, they say, how could this be happening to me? I said, Mr. Smith, you're 65 years old. If it's happening to you now, you beat the odds, right? So now it's happening. But the good news is, is that there's things we can do to fight back and improve the sexual function. Now, we'll get into this, but, you know, historically, what we've done is we've always been reactive. Reactive means we wait till you get erectile dysfunction, then we start a pill. If the pill doesn't work, we start an injection, then we start something else. And I think this whole paradigm is shifting to be proactive. And how do we be proactive? It's diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. Those are the four pillars. Diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction. Not only does that help reverse erectile dysfunction, not only does it help prevent erectile dysfunction, but think about all the other medical conditions I'm treating. Diabetes, hypertension, uh, metabolic syndrome. So I really believe that you know this proactive approach really is the way to think about treating ED and preventing ED.
0: So talk to me about that a little bit, because as I understand it, uh, erectile dysfunction is actually, can be a sign of other diseases, not just sexual dysfunction.
1: Great point. So this is where people start getting getting their attention. If a man develops erectile dysfunction today, 15% of them will have a cardiovascular event within seven years. That's a lot, 15%. Um, So the reason behind that, and many people have shown that, that ED is the first sign of a heart attack. Why is that so? Now, there's several theories. One of the theories is called the arterial diameter theory, which means, if you think about it, the penile arteries are only 1 to 2 millimeters. The coronary arteries are a little bit bigger. They're 3 to 4 millimeters. The carotids are typically 6 millimeters. If you are going to occlude an artery in the body, you're more likely to occlude the penile artery first before the coronary, more likely to occlude the coronary before the carotid. So it is true. Men will get a ED before they get a heart attack, a heart attack before they get a stroke. It follows that stepwise fashion. So if a patient comes into my office and they have ED and they have two cardiac risk factors, maybe they're a smoker, maybe they're obese, and they've never had a cardiac workup we send them. And the risk of finding a cold cardiovascular, uh, the uh, cardiovascular disease is about 30%. So think about it. I mean, this is really one of the first signs. There've been other studies. There was a wonderful study that came out of St. Louis, looking at database, looking at diabetes and looking at erectile dysfunction. If a man, these are young men, the ages of 18 and 45, they were young. If a man developed ED and was going to get diabetes, 75% of them were diagnosed within the first year. So you can use that as a marker for diagnosing diabetes and ED. And the last one is, what about depression? You can't discount the fact that men who get ED suffer from depression and anxiety significantly, and uh, realize that anxiety and depression, if you treat the ED, you can actually improve the anxiety and depression. So there are many things that are associated. I said that sexual dysfunction correlates with mental health, and physical health. And by treating your sexual dysfunction, you can actually improve mental health and physical health as well. So it's all correlated.
0: Right, I, Dr. Kelly Casperson talks about the biopsychosocial effects. Everything
1: yeah. is all inter, intertwined. I wanna mention something very important. Think about this. If a guy if a guy comes into my office and he says to me, uh, he has hypertension, listen to hypertension. And I say to him, I want you to eat healthier. I want you to exercise two and a half hours a week. I need you to sleep seven hours a day and I need you to decrease your stress. And if you do that, your hypertension will be better. A lot of times they say, just give me the pill. You know, if I tell a guy, you come in, he has erectile dysfunction. And I say, I want you to eat healthy, I want you to exercise, I want you to sleep better. He will do it. Like, so it's almost like ED is the gateway to getting men to change their behavior. Uh, And by the way, they have potential improve and the diabetes improve, but ED is really the impetus to get them to change their behavior and they do it. I mean, they really make an effort to stick to the program.
0: What are some other causes of um, ED though, if it's not related? Right. To
1: the-, the mnemonic I teach our the residents and the medical students is vent. Vascular, endocrine, neurologic, and trauma. Vascular is the most common cause of ED in the world. And there's two types of vascular. It's very simple when you think about an erection. Blood has to come in and blood should not come out. So if the blood comes in and it doesn't come out, it's going to cause an erection. But let's say the blood comes in, but the blood comes out faster. Then you're not going to get an erection. And that's the most common cause of ED called venous leak, meaning blood comes in, but it's coming out too fast. And what will the patient tell you? He'll say, I can get the erection. I just can't maintain it. He's telling you he's got venous leak right so i can get the erection but i just can't maintain it so vascular is the most common cause of ed now the other things you cannot forget are medications they're notorious beta blockers you know i mean we take them for blood pressure i mean there's many medications ssris antidepressants can cause it as well and then don't forget a large percentage of sexual dysfunction is psychologic right so uh, it's your partner it's the stress things are going on in your mind and many times i'll say man will "I have ED, but no problems with masturbation." Well, then it's psychogenic, right? Uh his, I have ED with my wife, but you know, one my my girlfriend, I'm not, you know, so that's psychogenic, right? So we have to question whether this is psychogenic or not.
0: Interestingly, these are very similar um, causes of of female libido issues, <laughs> so it's it's right. almost the same answer for both, even same though the answers yes. are different. Um, I it's funny because a, a lot of men that I meet. I don't think they realize that, I mean, I have uh, friends who share their Viagra and what you're really bringing to uh, my attention is that don't do that because that there could be something serious going on here. And it's not just that you can't, that you can't get
1: hard. Exactly. If you absolutely could be the first sign of a more serious medical condition, right? And that's, that's very important to get it evaluated.
0: One of the things I I love about when you speak and, and you're method of treating you talk about treating in the, in the case of I'm, I'm assuming heterosexual couples but i imagine this is true in, in any um, relationship between two people where ed is an issue talk about your more holistic approach yes well.
1: so we have to talk about this in the context of a story so in 2008 when I, I finished my fellowship in 2007 and i specialized predominantly in male sexual dysfunction and i was so proud of myself i was able to get these men these amazing erections Great libido. And then they would go home and they'd have no one to have sex with. Right. Because the wives would come in or the partners would come in and say, look, things were great until he met you. And now we fight all the time because he wants to have sex and I do not want to have sex with him. So I quickly learned that either you leave both libidos low, which is fine, but you don't raise one or the other without raising them both, you know, because you're going to set up conflict. So I quickly went out to do a mini fellowship with uh, my mentor, amazing person, Dr. Erwin Goldstein out in San Diego, and uh, went to some of the ishwish courses, which you're familiar with, and started treating female sexual dysfunction back in 2009. And uh, and it really is a couple's disease. If you're treating one partner and you don't ask about the other, you're missing 50% of the boat here, you know? So I wanna give you some great examples. Dr. Goldstein did a wonderful study many years ago, giving men Levitra and he gave men Levitra or placebo. And then he gave the female partners and he never met them. He just gave the female partners at home, a questionnaire called the FSFI female sexual function index.
0: Sorry, I'm just going to stop you for a second. Levitra is Viagra. It's like a Viagra. Okay. Okay.
1: It's like a Viagra. Yeah, it's called Mm -hmm. like a Viagra. Same kind of concept. And what he found was in those men who he gave the Levitra to, they had an improvement in their erections. That makes sense. He gave them Levitra. Those men who gave placebo to, they had no real improvement in their erections. But the most fascinating thing was that in the women, the female partners at home, if the man got Levitra, that partner saw a significant increase in her libido, her arousal, her orgasmic function. Significant And in the men's who got placebo, those partners didn't see any change or very little change at all. And that study really stuck with me because I said, look, this is a couple's disease. So many years after that, we did a study where we gave the women uh, testosterone. I gave the IIEF, which is a sexual function questionnaire to the men. Never wanted to meet them, just gave it to their male partners. And as you raise a woman's libido, his erections start to improve, right? And so you got to understand, I tell my residents, if you want to significantly improve the man's erections, don't forget about skyrocketing his partner's libido. It will really help. And we've done many other studies like that after radical prostatectomy showing that, again, you treat one, you're actually improving the other. Treat the other, you're actually improving the other. So so, so focus on the couple because it's a couple's disease. It's not an individual disease. It's a couple's disease.
0: What are some other issues, uh, male sexual dysfunction besides ED that-
1: uh, Let's exam. talk about them because they're really important. The one that most people don't talk about is Peroni's disease. Peroni's disease is an abnormal curvature of the penis when it's erect. And if it curves greater than 60 degrees, it's prohibitive for intercourse. So, and it can cause pain to the patient and to the partner, right? So, and these patients are truly devastated because it's almost like a disfigurement. You know I mean, like if you know, if it's completely changing the curve, and sometimes it can be multiple curves. And so, nine percent up to nine percent of all men in the world suffer from this. Can you imagine? Wow, nine percent, but no one talks about it. I mean, it's a silent, it's, a sil- it's a, one of those again, suffering and silence conditions. And in 2015, something very fortunate happened. The first FDA approved drug to treat this medication came out. And essentially, what it is, it's a medication that you place into the plaque that breaks up the rock. So uh, the best way to think about this disease is if I take a balloon and I put a piece of duct tape on the balloon and I blow the balloon up, what do you think is gonna happen? It's gonna curve in the direction of the tape because that's not expanding. So essentially that's what it is. It's a it's a, almost like a plaque scar tissue sitting on the penile tissue. So we use a medication and we put the uh, injection into the plaque and this breaks up the scar. And so it improves the curvature by 30 to 40%. And so um, it's very, it's effective. There are other devices. There's a penile stretching device, believe it or not. These concepts actually came from the porn sites many, many years ago because they make the penis larger and wider, but they also make the penis straighter. And originally you had to wear it for six to eight hours a day, which is a lot of time. Now the new ones, this, this is one at of Mayo Clinic. It's called Restorex. It bends the penis in the opposite direction, and you can wear it for 30 minutes twice a day with about 30% improvement in curvature. So those are some things that really help a lot. But Peyronie's disease is important. Many men suffer from it. They need to know there is treatment out there for Peyronie's disease. Another one we don't talk about is ejaculatory disorders. We, everyone knows about premature ejaculation, but there's also delayed ejaculation or an ejaculation or anorgasmia, not able to ejaculate at all. And we know that up the 30% of men suffer from ejaculatory disorders, that's a lot. And less than 9% will seek treatment. Um, and so, you know, premature ejaculation, if you think about it, it's if a man ejaculates less than two minutes and is bothered by the condition. So if he says, I ejaculate in 30 seconds, but I don't really care. I say, great, we're done. I mean, it has to, he has to be bothered right. by the condition. But if he is bothered by the condition, uh, the treatment options are pretty straightforward. And they're they're off-label, though. One is uh, a uh, it's an anesthetic spray you can put on the penis. Most commonly used one is called promescent. You can get online, but it numbs the penis and so that the patient has decreased sensation and so he can go longer you know, and those don't require a prescription. But most commonly are used the antidepressants, um, Paxil, Zoloft, they really work. But if you take it on demand, you got to take it six to eight hours ahead of time, which is a long time. If you take it daily, then it's, you know, nice. But sometimes men don't want to take a daily antidepressant. So I have to kind of balance that. And then the off-label uses on second-line therapy for premature ejaculation are Tramadol, but that's a pain medication. So some people can't get addicted but it does significantly delay the ejaculatory time and then medications to help you urinate like Flomax, You may have heard of these, they, they can delay as well. So those are some of the treatment options and many men do not know that there are treatment options for this, but this one is absolutely treatable.
0: That's for premature. What about the opposite? Uh, delayed.
1: So that one's a tougher one um, because you know, both in delayed and premature, you have to first figure out, is this lifelong or is this acquired? Did he have it ever since he remembered, or at forty-five things switched over? You know, but in delayed orgasmia, many times it's a psychological component. If they say I can, it's I, if it takes me forever to achieve orgasm with my wife. Typically, a delayed orgasmia is about fifteen to twenty minutes. In America, the average ejaculatory time is about seven to nine minutes in men. Just so you know, but this is a delayed and um. But really, it's whatever bothers him. But the sometimes men will say, with my partner, I cannot. It takes too long. But with masturbation, it's, it's quite easy. So then you know it's psychogenic right i mean there's something going on but so many options for this one again all off label um, but we use anything that increases dopamine in the brain if you increase dopamine in men or women you increase libido and you can improve ejaculatory time so it's going to be something like welbutrin which you're, you may fill it with Docenex, which is a medication which increases dopamine in the brain we use for pituitary tumors um off label i use a medication called addy addy we use it in men it's called fulvanserine right. and it, and it raises dopamine and norepinephrine, and uh, it helps with delayed orgasm. I want to give you a story because I just got this published two months ago. 28-year-old man came to me, um, very sad, and he had, he has what we call primary lifelong anorgasmia. Never had an orgasm in his life. So we tried Welbutrin. We tried sex therapy. Uh, we tried Breed Melanotide. These are all you know off-label. We tried ID, and he had his first orgasm in his life. And now when he takes the medication, he can get about 50% at a time uh, in orgasm. So um, anything that increases the dopamine will really help with orgasmic function.
0: So a lot of what you're talking about are treatments for women as well. So talk to me a little bit about the issues that you um, work with for female sexual dysfunction and treatment.
1: Men and women are not that different. I mean, they really aren't. When you talk about libido centrally and hormone centrally, and so Addy was uh, came out in two thousand fifteen. FDA approved strictly. FDA approved strictly increased her desire for sex, and there were many studies after two thousand fifteen in women showing that Addy actually improves orgasmic function. The other medications, for example, like Viagra in men, Viagra improves arousal. Does it help women? Of course it does. It helps improve arousal in women as well. Bremelanotide, which is a woman a medication we use for women called Vilesi, can help with orgasmic function and libido. Can it help in men? For sure it does. Again, it's used off-label, so we wanna be very clear, but men and women are not that different. And you can use a medication in a man, uh, as long as you're counseling and explains off-label, in a woman and vice versa, And that's what we do we use these medications interchangeably
0: and what about testosterone for both men and women
1: great medication and i think it's extremely effective for both men and women the dose you want to remember for the women is one-tenth the dose so whatever i use in a man i want to use one-tenth in a woman and uh, so i think it's very effective just in in women the key is to start low intentionally And then work your way up. If you overshoot a man accidentally, you can just bring it back down. But if you overshoot a woman, it's acne and facial hair, you know, and so you really want to just go slow. So I prefer using injections in women and it's subcutaneous. It's a tiny needle. She injects once a week. If she's willing to inject twice a week, it's even better because you don't get those big peaks and troughs. And I will use pellets in women. I use injectables in women. I use cream in women. In men, I have more options. I use the same, but I still like the injectables. Um, But there are now orals. So, the, a lot of men will take oral testosterone. We've never had an oral in the United States until 2019. Uh, well, we did, but they would, would pass the liver and they could cause some damage. 2019 was our first oral called Undecanoate that does not go through the liver. So, very safe. And so, but most men like the injectables because it gives a good level and uh, it's cheap. If you get it from a compounding pharmacy, it's 30 bucks a month and they ship it to you and very, very affordable. You know, they're very good for libido. erectile function but there are other benefits with testosterone that are non-sexual i mean let's talk about muscle mass bone mineral density fat deposition sleep some cognition really it's not just about sex it's about your overall health uh, and I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware, some major trials, some amazing trials came out called the TRAVERSE trial that was just came out last year. So I was involved in the TRAVERSE trial. There, this, there was this, We started the study, first patient in 2018. Uh, last patient was recruited in 2022. Uh, and we had the publication last year, the largest randomized placebo-controlled trial giving men testosterone strictly to look at. Does it cause a heart attack? That was the number one primary goal. Good news does not cause a heart attack. So that's great. Um, we looked at sexual function. It helped with libido. Didn't help with erectile function as monotherapy, but it helped with libido. Urinary function did not cause any worsening of urinary function and did not cause any worsening of prostate cancer or any cause any prostate cancer. So uh, if anyone on this podcast is listening to this, look up the Traverse trial. It's amazing. A lot of good data on that study.
0: Now, how do you get that study for women? Because they don't study it on, especially postmenopausal women. Yeah, They're, that's are, very uh, true.
1: But your point's well taken. We don't have a large studies in women on testosterone, right? Uh, it's not FDA approved in the United States. So right. if I went to Walgreens and said, please give me the testosterone for women, that doesn't exist, right? If I went into Europe, uh, they had, it used to have Entrenza as a patch. I mean, other places have Testosterone, But the U.S. still to this day, unfortunately, surprisingly, uh, does not have any FDA approved testosterone for women. Because they
0: don't study it on women. <laughs> the men yeah, get the I mean, funding. We need the yeah. funding for no, women well. That's the point. Well. I mean,
1: some studies, but you're right, not to this magnitude. You are absolutely correct.
0: Yeah. I know I asked you about this when we first met. There's controversy over delivery systems of testosterone for women, the pellets and the injectables. Some doctors are adamant that that I actually have heard the word malpractice. I have personally, I, I get the pellet. I've been getting it for years now. So I'm just curious as to your opinion and why someone might, another medical
1: provider might. Have a- so two things. Testosterone is a compound; it's a molecule. So it's uh, these different form- ways formulations are different ways to get the body testosterone into the body. One is not more magical than the other. We've been treating many women on testosterone pellets since two thousand and eight, when we had testapel. Then we switched them over to compounded uh, testosterone pellets. And, um, you know, physiologically, it's fine, but they it, it causes a large surge at the beginning, and then it kind of comes down towards the end. And towards the end, these women don't feel they're optimal, and then they're kind of rushing back in to get their next – Palette And so, but if you use an injectable or a cream, you tend to not get those long, big peaks and troughs over a big period of time. The injectable can have a half-life of about seven days. So over a course of four weeks, you'll kind of get a nice baseline with little peaks and troughs. So my favorite really is the injectables. Uh, I'll use creams secondarily, but they really don't absorb very well. It's the creams are dependent on skin penetration. So if it penetrates your skin, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, and you can get variable penetration day by day, so that can change as well. So truthfully, my favorite would be the injectables. But I would go to pellet second, uh, in the sense that you know it's convenient, it does work, it does get the levels up. You just gotta be careful because you can't take the pellet out. So um, if they don't right. like it, it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky. But
0: Actually, there's no as far as, as you know, there's no excessive dangers and having even the injectables the levels of testosterone um, as long as they're the calibrated shown, properly
1: yeah long-term studies have not shown increased danger with testosterone in general some studies have shown that testosterone may be protective against breast cancer I don't, I don't know if you saw that data so it could be the only problem i have with the pellets is i don't like that long super physiologic run at the beginning it, it takes them pretty high you know, and I try to keep it more in the sweet zone if I can. So, but I have patients since two thousand and eight that have come every three months to this day, and will not stop coming because they feel so good on the pellets. And we just are—we just presented a major abstract at a scientific meeting uh, with my pellet data and all the women that I have treated over the years. And one interesting thing that we uh, we just submitted this for publication is that in women. Even though they're at superphysiologic levels, we don't see the high erythrocytosis rates that we see in men, which is kind of odd. And I don't know why. I'm sorry, elevation in the red blood cell count. Okay. Like you know, in men, many times I have to have them donate blood and keep donating blood to bring their blood count down because the pellets can raise their blood blood cells. Mm -hmm. But in women, I'm not seeing that. And so that's just an interesting finding.
0: So as far as you're concerned, whichever form you do, it's just the issue of, of the, the spike. And that's why you like the the injectables.
1: I like the injectables better. Now, don't get me wrong. Injectables have some spike also, but they're milder spikes.
0: Right.
1: If you dose it and split it twice a week, then the big spike that you see all of a sudden. So it just depends on how you want to do it. But I think the injectables, anything that doesn't spike too much, I think is, is, is better. Now, but some women really like the pellets. They just say they feel better because... When you take a woman from low to high in a big delta, that delta feels like a rush. They feel good when they get their pellets initially, you know, and so many women like that. But I have not seen any adverse events since 2008 in the woman we treated. Maybe some women have to donate blood other than that it's been very well tolerated.
0: As I understand it, actually, now that I've been on it for so long that the level isn't quite that low that there's as much of a spike. Does that make sense? Or,
1: well, I couple, mean, it does it, go
0: down, but but not it quite. It does go thing. down, but
1: it's just very simple. And so Karen, it, it depends on when I catch you. So if, you, if I give you the pellet today and your levels go up and then they start coming down, wherever I put the next pellet will dictate where your level is, right? If I wait three months, it may be one number. If I wait four months, it's another number. If I wait five months, it's another number. So the trick is to catch her before she falls too low. You know what I mean? But don't you know? But don't let let, let don't put it when she's too high either. It's going to cause a problem. So you find the sweet spot. Now, what's nice is, and they've shown this in men as well, is that um, a woman will typically have about the same decay curve every time. So if she's a three monther. She's a three monther. She's a four month monther. She's a four month monther. You can figure out the pattern, and you'll just stick to that pattern. Uh, with her.
0: Is there any um, disadvantage or or counterindication to switching from pellet to shots or shots to pellets? No, or-
1: great question. So I say, look, there's three things you want to remember. It's cost, compliance, and concentration, and actually convenience. So everyone's different. So say this is not a cost is not a big issue to me. Uh, convenience is really important. I'm terrible in putting my daily cream. So that person would do great on a pellet. If someone says I'm great at compliance, I would say so. And then convenience. So so if it's cost, compliance, uh, uh, concentration, convenience, maybe I'm using a cream, but I can't get the level. So I take all four into account. It doesn't matter which one. Whatever works best for you on the four Cs is right. what we go with, you know?
0: Right. You mentioned earlier, and I know this is not your necessarily your area of expertise, but I'm sure that you're familiar with that some – Often for certain issues, you send your patients to sex therapy. Do you know what exactly, like how they help? Of course, everyone imagines a sex therapist is going to be on the couch with you, but I I don't think that's what's going on. They've been
1: so helpful because I'll tell you this, when COVID happened, a lot of my sex therapists started going virtual. And I found very quickly that the male patients actually much rather do virtual than in person. Uh, and that was a barrier. So they don't mind jumping on Zoom if they're gonna do it, then but they rather do that than go in person. So that's number one. Number two is that, but most men just don't want to go see a sex therapist. For some, I, I just it's just kind of like pushing them to do it. They just really prefer not to. But those that do see a sex therapist have the best outcome because sex therapy in conjunction with medications is much more powerful than each one by themselves. You know, and so, and I tell them the sex therapist is a cure for your premature ejaculation. So you can take an antidepressant and you take it for the rest of your life, or you see a sex therapist and they'll teach you the start-stop technique. They'll teach you the squeeze technique. They'll walk you through it. And that's a cure. And uh, unfortunately, most men just say, give me the pill. You know, I mean, they, they, I mean, they say that, but uh, I say, if you can do both, you may be able to get off the pill and uh, and then you're fine. So very effective for erectile dysfunction, particularly psychogenic ED. All the a lot of young men, 30s, 25, they don't usually have organic ED, they have a new girlfriend, they have a new relationship, and something called the vicious cycle occurs. This is the vicious cycle. So, Karen, I got a young man engaged in sexual activity and he gets ED. Okay, he's so freaked out that he's 29 years old. How could a 29 year old have ED that the next time he has sex, he is saying to himself, I hope I don't get ED, and the second he says that, it's a guarantee he's going to get ED, right. <laughs> It's a guarantee. Now it's happened twice. So now the snowball gets bigger. It's like, oh my God, it happened twice. And then the next time he's thinking about it and it keeps on happening. And so you have to break that cycle. And so daily Cialis has been very helpful in breaking that cycle because they take it every day and things look like they're normal. But sex therapy is extremely helpful in that situation where you have psychogenic ED.
0: I mean, it makes sense. It's the same with any kind of therapy, you know, any kind of antidepressant alone, it's not necessarily going to cure you. You'll feel better every day, but it's not necessarily going to make the problems, you know, better. Go away.
1: That's right. So I tell them if you want to cure sex therapy.
0: Do you see um, porn being an issue?
1: It can be. So porn can, in my practice, can see two things. One is that it can lead to erectile dysfunction and it could lead to delayed orgasmia. Because what happens is when a man's continuously watching porn, his expectation goes up, okay? And when he's engaging in sexual activity, his reality is not meeting his expectation. And so it takes much longer to ejaculate. He may lose his erection. And so it's an issue. And so if someone comes in and says, I've delayed orgasm or anorgasmia, or I'm starting to erectile dysfunction, and he's young, I say, are you watching porn? You know, because you have to put that in the game.
0: It's interesting because women often, I mean, we go to the gynecologist theoretically from when we're, you know, we get our period. I don't know. Hopefully hopefully, as soon as that. But if not, when we get to college, we start having regular medical care where men tend to wait for some catastrophe. And I saw it with my ex-husband. I remember we had some incident where he passed out and he ended up having to go for a full cardiac Work up, and it was everything was fine. But that was the first time he really started going to a doctor, and he was probably fifty. Yes. Yeah. So how do we get men to start seeing a doctor regularly? Yeah. It's just as important as we go to the gynecologist. I
1: can't tell you how important it is, and I call it the area under the curve because let's say you start with a disease or some process is going on when you're thirty, and you continue to let it grow and grow and grow till it manifests. All that damage, let's say hypertension or increased blood sugar. Is causing damage and irreversible damage in some cases to your blood vessels. So the sooner you act, the less likely you are to start rising that slope, right? And so I have always believed that if you, there's two ways to look at this. We call it offense and defense, okay? Offense uh, essentially means diet, exercise, sleep and stress reduction. There's not a pill on the planet stronger than diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. And if you decide, Karen, that you're going to focus on one of them today, you decide on sleep or exercise, and you're going to go hard on it, it's going to change your life. It's going to make a huge impact on your quality of life. And it's not only going to feel better, but you're preventing problems from happening in the future. You're preventing problems from having future. Defense means I want to make sure that nothing bad is going on. So Cancer screening, to make sure there's no issues. We can talk about that. Uh, The cardiovascular screening, that's another way. So there's only four ways you're going to die. It's going to be cancer, cardiovascular, metabolic, or neurodegenerative. means Alzheimer's, uh, barring that you don't get in a car accident or a plane crash or anything. Those are the four ways. So if you knew those were the four ways that something bad is going to happen to you, why not be proactive about making sure that none of those four are going to get you? And so we have the patients come in and be proactive about screening. And those are very, very important. So two ways to look at it. But as I mentioned earlier, how can I get men to take their health seriously? And blood pressure is not going to do it. Erectile dysfunction will. There's one thing. <laughs> it will. It is actually my gateway to get them to start taking care of themselves. That is my gateway.
0: And, and that if they come in young, but when they're 65 and they haven't right. seen a doctor until then, that's really unfortunate.
1: <laughs> it's unfortunate. And but but it, that, I, I always say it's never too late to start. It's never too late to start because if you start at 65 and you and I, I can make it to 90. I got 25 years to, you know, just make it uh, really good for you. And I want to improve not your lifespan, but your health span. I want the quality of life to be good as well. And that's why uh, we go pretty hard. If the patient comes in, I say, look, this is a partnership. I'm happy to fine tune your hormones. I will fine tune your medical health. But that's 50% of the story. you got to meet me on the other 50%. And if you meet me on the other 50%, we're on fire. You know, we will be on fire. But you got to meet me on the diet, exercise, sleep, and stress.
0: Yeah. You mentioned cancer. or uh women, this is not necessarily a cancer prevention, but I've heard, and and unfortunately, sometimes this is the only advice women get is use it or lose it. That if you don't continue to maintain blood flow to the vulvovaginal area, you're going to get what they used to call atrophy and they've rebranded, but anyway, um, you're going to have more issues. I've read that with men, it's, it's important for prevention of prostate cancer. Is that in fact true or not exactly? That's just a story? You know, not exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I mean, some have said, oh, if I have more sex, will I have decreased prostate cancer? There may be an association between men who have more sex, uh, and that they have less uh, prostate cancer, but it's not a causality, you know, like, uh, it could be, it's maybe it may be an association, but it, it's not that if I have more sex, uh, I'm going to decrease my risk of prostate. I have not seen convincing data for me to believe that there are other things that you can do. I mean, uh, the best part of pan- cancer prevention for prostate cancer is screening, screen, screen, screen. And we now have very sophisticated tests. So the PSA is a bad test. It has very poor sensitivity specificity, but we came out with even better tests. So we now have a 4K or a phi score, which gives you another idea if the PSA is real or not. And now we have MRI, which is even better than those two. So in the old days, I'd get a PSA. It was elevated. I'd have to do a biopsy. Now I can use my tools with the Phi, the 4K, other uh, genomic markers, and then I can also get an MRI. And if the MRI shows something, then I can put this into a machine that actually superimposes the image with the ultrasound, and I can do a targeted biopsy. If you saw me when I first came out of my residency, I didn't have that. So we would do six random biopsies on one side, six on the other, and we'd hope that we'd get it. But now with, with a fusion biopsy, we can hit it to the millimeter. We know where the lesion is, and so the MRI has really revolutionized the way we diagnose and treat men uh, for prostate cancer.
0: Should the MRI for men be like the mammogram is for women that everyone should have an annual?
1: Yeah, then you come into like, you know, cost and and, and benefit ratio. So essentially using the PSA and the Phi or the 4K as a marker to decide who needs the MRI makes the most sense. You know, and if your uh, PSA is going up or your phi score or 4K is going up, that would be uh, ultimately the best. Because we have, unlike in women, for a blood test, we have a blood test for men. It's not the best, but it's pretty good in terms of the 5 and the 4K and using it in combination. So when you put them all together, it increases the sensitivity and specificity. So I think we're still on the blood test first. And if we need to go to MRI, we do. But I wouldn't advocate MRIs for everybody.
0: And what age should men start to be screening more? Unless
1: you're high risk, which is African-American who have a family history, it's 55 to 70. Every year, 55 to 70, you should be screened. Now, we call this shared decision-making. You, uh, Some men uh, with uh, counseling may say, I want to do it every other year. Some men may say that, you know, based on my medical condition, I don't want to do it anymore. So we start at 55, but we start with something called shared decision-making, meaning is it worth it to do this every year in the patient?
0: Um. Is there anything we haven't covered that you want to talk about? And then I want yeah. to ask your your top three things that you would you would tell men to yeah, say. Yeah,
1: I I always like to say that this is sexual dysfunction in men and in women. Uh, we all suffer in silence, and you don't have to suffer in silence. And you know that, Karen. They there are so many great treatments out there. You just have to go out and seek those treatments. If you can't get those treatments, now we have the internet and and we have, you can, you know, you can get information online. Uh, you can, there's so many websites. There's the smsna.org, which is Sexual Medicine Society of North America.org. Phenomenal website, lots of resources on all the conditions we talked about today. Um, so I think that's just another, another option. But don't have to suffer in silence. There are treatment options available um, and just go out and seek them.
0: I will put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was, wow, totally
1: insightful.
0: My pleasure. A ton ton of information, and I really, really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. No problem. Thank you, Carrie.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the Taboo to Truth podcast, where I'm spicing up midlife one episode at a time. If you've been enjoying The Sizzle, Why not turn up the heat by giving me a scorching five-star rating and leaving a steamy review? It's the best way to help others discover pleasure in their sex life. So don't be shy. Show me some love and keep the midlife adventure alive. And until next time, grab your favorite drink and put me on speaker. It's time we broke the silence.